want to invite you to turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And though I know I shouldn't express this, I continue to be amazed and encouraged by my own study of this letter and just the richness of insight that the Spirit of God has inspired in the writing of Paul to these believers in the first century in Corinth. It's just an amazing, amazing work of God, and I'm so thankful that we have an opportunity to spend some time sort of looking at it once again this morning. We've been really taking up what you might call just a broad question, uh, the question being, how do we remain faithful in a world of idols, in a society of idolatrous people, and in our battle with our own flesh that craves carnal replacements of the one true and living God? How do we do that? What are some insights that we can glean? What are some directives that we can yield our lives to from this particular chapter that would help us to remain faithful in a, in a a world that is inclined toward unfaithfulness and, and toward really toward idolatry, toward suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and making this grand exchange, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, as Romans 1 tells us. And so we've been looking at this from that particular vantage point, understanding that the Apostle Paul has been sort of talking about this matter of idolatry in maybe a broader way as he took up the the task of addressing what was going on in Corinth, and that was that there were Corinthian believers, professing believers in Corinth, who were basically priding themselves on their Christian liberty that they felt enabled them to partake of meat that had been sacrificed to idols, And they would do that to the exclusion of sensibilities or tender consciences of fellow believers who would be provoked by such an act and see it as uh, sinful and also would be provoked to such a degree that they could ultimately be led into sin. And of course, as we've talked about the entire sort of uh, pagan worship system in that time, it was also uh, fraught with all kinds of other indulgent sins. Um, not the least of which certainly is sexual immorality. And so this matter of temptation to sexual immorality was on full display in this, this whole uh, setting in, in first century Corinth and certainly uh, has been taken up by the Apostle Paul on a number of occasions, even in our study of chapters 8, 9, and 10. But we've been looking at chapter 10 in particular and trying to specifically, as the Apostle Paul goes to this place of dealing specifically with idolatry, not just the practice of eating food sacrificed to idols as a provocation uh, and a source of conflict in the life of the church, as, as in other words, as participating in some kind of act or activity that you believe would, your Christian liberty would allow you to do. In other words, the Bible doesn't explicitly say, don't do it. Or the Bible doesn't explicitly say, you must do this, and so therefore, I can do this in my Christian liberty, or I don't have to do that in my Christian liberty, and and we can operate in a a matter of pride and not in love toward our fellow believers. That's kind of the principle here, is is when we we operate in our Christian liberties in such a way that we, we don't consider the effect of our actions, the impact of our actions on fellow believers, particularly weaker believers, newer believers potentially, then we are then, in so doing and exercising those liberties, we are engaging in sin. 
But here the Apostle Paul has been taking up this matter more explicitly of idolatry. And so we've been looking at this from the vantage point of instruction from the Apostle Paul to these Corinthians, pointing them toward faithfulness in the midst of this idolatrous environment and even this idolatrous practice that they had actually been redeemed out of. So let's read the first, uh, we're going to read the first 14 verses together. We're going to work our way down probably through verse 13, but uh, 14 is also a part of the mix that we'll pick up next week. Let's read uh, chapters, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 14 to get our, our time started. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And then in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now as we've been looking at this this section over the last number of weeks, the first sort of principle that we drew out from this in our desire to be faithful in a world of idolatry and a society of idolatrous people and even in the battle against our own carnal inclination toward idolatry, the first principle that we pointed out was this principle of resisting prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history. And this is what we see the Apostle Paul simply do. He simply raises points from Old Testament narrative specifically centering around the Exodus, this seminal event in redemptive history and certainly in the history of the Jewish people. And we looked at this from the standpoint of a number of different uh, particular characteristics of this, of this recalling of redemptive history. We first talked about the need to recall the Lord's miraculous deliverance. We saw that in the first two verses in this, this discussion of all of the people of Israel being under the cloud and all passing through the sea. In other words, this blessing of deliverance, this miraculous deliverance, we're, we're to be looking at the Lord's miraculous deliverance, the way that he delivers his people. And then we are also to recall the Lord's spiritual provision. We saw that in verse 3 and 4, where the Lord miraculously provided actual sustenance to the people in their wilderness wanderings in the form of food and drink. And we're, we're, we're called to think about these ways in which the Lord provided even for his people, the people of Israel. We are to hearken back to these things. He's drawing attention to this history. And then last week we spent quite a bit of time looking at this last sort of sub-point, 
in this recalling the redemptive history of the Lord and his faithfulness. We're to recall the Lord's judgment of the unfaithful. This is a little more of a somber look at the the narrative. You see this in verse 5 through verse 11. He kind of comes to this, this sudden transition saying, Nevertheless, even though all these blessings were a part of the Lord's deliverance and provision of the people of Israel. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In spite of the Lord's provision, in spite of the Lord's deliverance after 430 years of slavery, the sad reality that the Apostle Paul is drawing the focus to is that the Lord was not pleased with most of them. And then he goes on in the subsequent verses to elaborate, verses 6 to 11, to sort of elaborate some of the ways in which their unfaithfulness led to their suffering and even their being strewn down or overthrown, it says, in the wilderness, laid low. It's a really graphic picture of judgment that occurred amongst the first generation who were delivered out of the hands of Egyptian bondage and never made it into the promised land except for, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. So you have this this recalling of redemptive history in these particular ways to sort of put in front of us the ways and works of God himself and how he redeems his people, but also how he is the judge of unfaithfulness, particularly as it works itself out in these forms of idolatry and sensuality and grumbling and complaining and so forth. And we talked about the, the, the... passage here that kind of provides this interesting bookend in verse 6 and then in verse 11 where the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to notice that that these things are, are written down for us. These things are given to us in the Old Testament as examples for us in verse 6 that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verse 11, they were written down for our instruction. And we sort of hammered on the point that that clear and consistent reflection upon God's ways and God's works, and even in particular, reflection, meditation on His works of judgment that have been recorded for us and preserved in Scripture, that this is one of the essential means by which our evil desires, our evil cravings that He speaks of, are subdued and our hearts and minds are instructed in righteousness. That, That this exercise that the Apostle Paul is working through here is not just sort of some, you know, fascination of his as, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin, he describes himself in another place. It's not just him sort of trying to impress with his knowledge of the Old Testament. He is literally speaking to first century, predominantly Gentile, professing Christians, and he's pointing them to Old Testament narrative and saying, you need to look at these things And you need to be guarded and warned and instructed by them both to subdue the evil cravings, the inclinations of your heart toward idolatry and to have your your heart and mind instructed toward righteousness, toward faithfulness. But these things were written down for our instruction. This is not, the Old Testament in other words, is not to be sort of put on a shelf as some kind of honorary, you know, memorial text that we just, you know, look at from a distance and say, you know, wasn't it great that God did all of that, but now we're in the new covenant and that's all we need to focus on. That is not at all what is in, in, inherent in this instruction from the Apostle Paul. 
here in the New Testament, here, here pointed to a largely Gentile New Covenant people. Just a fascinating uh, notation there. And he's calling all of us to literally look squarely at these stark examples, especially in these last few verses in chapter 10, verses 6 to 11, where he gives us these categories of their idolatrous cravings. There was overt idolatry that he points to in verse 7. There's sexual idolatry in verse 9. There's testing of the Lord. Excuse me, sexual idolatry in verse 8. Testing of the Lord in verse 9. Grumbling in verse 10. And he's, he's providing these, these occasions or these, really a profile of what was happening over this 40-year span of wilderness wandering that became somewhat characteristic of this first generation of people who were miraculously and graciously delivered by a good and faithful God, and yet they became characterized by these idolatrous cravings and acts that led to the judgment of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you need to look at these things, and you need to be warned by them, and you need to be instructed by them. In other words, he concludes this little section with this verse, in verse 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So in other words, if we're going to remain faithful in a world of idols, we must resist prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history. We must Resist the temptation to think that all is well with us, regardless of our thinking, regardless of our, the, the, the trajectory of our habits and our actions of life. Because if we do that, then we could find ourselves, because we live in a world of idolatry, and because we are surrounded by idolatrous practice, and because the very inclination of our hearts in our flesh, apart from the, the active and sanctifying work of Christ, is inclined toward replace me, replacing God with, with earthly things and satisfying earthly cravings. You can't be passive, in other words. You need to take heed lest you fall. Now, this has been, as I've said on a couple of different occasions, somewhat um, depressing in a way, especially the way that we've looked at it. I mean, we've actually gone to these Old Testament narrative passages and we've seen the people did this and this happened to them. The Lord judged in this kind of way over and over and over again. The Lord provided in these ways, but it wasn't enough or it wasn't in the right timing or it wasn't the right way. It wasn't the right kind of food to nourish them in the way that they wanted to be nourished or whatever it might be. They grumbled and they complained and they tested the Lord and judgment came. And this theme happens over and over again as you read through the narrative. Four decades of Israelite history, he he chronicles here. And he's highlighting God's gracious deliverance of his people and his guidance and faithful provision in and through these trials of the wilderness wanderings. But then we're confronted with the fact that most of them displease the Lord, and then we see all the ways that they displease the Lord, and it, it, it's just discouraging. We arrive at this warning of taking heed lest we fall, and it, as I said, this paints a, a pretty grim picture for us. Um, 
I mean, we, we've taken some time to survey these passages, and it just, I don't know about you, but it kind of weighs on me. It just makes me think of how, how heavy this burden of faithfulness in this kind of world and battling against my own flesh, how, how challenging and difficult it is to remain faithful in the midst of what Paul would refer to in another place, a crooked and perverse generation. In fact, one commentator says this, The Old Testament and ancient Judaism considered idolatry the most common and fundamental temptation of humanity, with sexual immorality as a related sign of human corruption and greed, a particular manifestation of idolatry. He says this suggests that Paul has the common human pull toward idolatry in mind. According to the Old Testament and early Jewish understanding, virtually all Gentiles and many Jews were guilty of idolatry. Congratulations. There's the profile. So, in looking at all of this, there is this sobering weightiness that we we have to kind of consider for a moment as we think about this comprehensive reality that we are fallen creatures in a fallen world. It is a weighty and pervasive and potentially discouraging reality. Especially if you are inclined to reflect at all on your own tendency toward sin and corruption. Especially if you sort of take stock of your life over the past day or week or month or year, and you begin to reflect upon all the, all the opportunities that the Lord put in your pathway that you squandered, all the relationship encounters that you did not handle in a godly way, and you did not reflect the character and grace of Christ, all of the ways in which you did not seize opportunities to be a, a beacon of light and hope of the gospel for those that are hurting or lost or perplexed or confused. And maybe at times where we didn't give wise and humble and hopeful counsel, but rather we turned immediately toward rebuke out of our own sense of inconvenience by someone's expressed need. It can be overwhelming when you spend a fair amount of time thinking about the impact of sin on our own hearts, our own minds, on our own experience of life and relationship and work. And even though in this passage, the Apostle Paul has provided a very clear balance that we're we're called to recall all of God's faithfulness and all of His grace and provision and His deliverance of His people while we also look at and recall his works of judgment. So it's not like the Apostle Paul is saying, just buckle up, hammer down, and spend all of your devotional time looking at all the ways God judges people who are unfaithful, and then reflect about on your potential unfaithfulness, and then be warned and tremble. It's balanced. He's saying, no, look at the Lord's faithfulness. Look at his kindness, his miraculous provision. But even though that happens, because we are in a world that is fallen and corrupt, And we feel the effects of it. We experience the effects of it. We perpetrate the effects of it. It's easy for us to have our thinking 
bent toward a sense of hopelessness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But then we get to verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 13, we arrive at hope. We arrive at consolation. We arrive really at powerful insight into the nature of temptation and into the resources that God provides for us to overcome and endure it. Powerful instruction in just this one verse even. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning sort of unpacking what we see here. And I don't know that I'll get through all of it. I don't think I will. It is so rich and so helpful if we just think carefully about it and and begin to apply it to our lives and our thinking. So let's look at this a little more carefully. We, We are called here to resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. That's sort of our third principle here. We're called to resist common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. And in in beginning kind of a look at this incredibly insightful verse, let's just start where we need to start. let's, let's, Let's understand, let's recognize that temptation doesn't have to mean temptation. This is such an important biblical principle and insight for us in our battle against temptation. That literally speaking, temptation doesn't have to mean temptation. In other words, this this sort of this ominous sense of constant enticement to sin that's always around us. That we don't have to think about temptation in that way, both textually and experientially. So let's unpack that for a minute. Literally, the word temptation, pirosmos, is simply means to test or prove. In other words, temptation, the word, has no negative connotation in and of itself. It's also translated, or it can be translated, trial. But it's literally about testing or proving or trying something. It doesn't carry with it on its face, the literal Greek word, this ominous sense of pervasive enticement to sin in a world that's full of sin and fallenness. And in my own flesh and my struggle, I'm just lured in that direction. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be even defined that way. It has no negative connotation. Listen to MacArthur's commentary on this particular point. He says, whether it becomes a proof of righteousness or an inducement to evil depends on our response. If we resist it in God's power, it is a test that proves our faithfulness. If we do not resist, it becomes a solicitation solicitation to sin. The Bible uses the term in both ways. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, it is clear that both God and Satan participated in the testing. 
God intended the test to prove his son's righteousness, but Satan intended it to induce Jesus to misuse his divine powers and to give his allegiance to Satan. You see a similar sort of working out of this in Job. Similar kind of idea. In fact, turn to James chapter 1. We looked at a portion of James chapter 1 last week, but we're going to kind of dive into it a little more broadly this time. Thinking about the fact that temptation doesn't have to mean temptation, the way we often think temptation should be defined. James chapter 1, again, these are very familiar passages, I'm sure, to most, if not all of you. But they are powerful and profound nonetheless, especially considering the use of this particular term. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, there's the word, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now this is a command for us to embrace with joy the parosmos, the trial. Like to approach it and to think of it and to consider it joy. The same word. These trials of various kinds that we face. Why? Well, he answers it right there because God's using these trials to produce endurance so that we become mature and we lack nothing. This is a phenomenal principle when we think about the nature of this term as it's used in Scripture, but also as we think about the nature of our our experience of it. That the very thing that we often see as merely an enticement to evil is not necessarily an enticement to evil unless we are led astray, as James will say, by our own desires. The very circumstance, the very difficulty, the very trial, the very relationship conflict, the very financial struggle, whatever it might be, could just as well be a test to prove out and affirm and encourage you in your faithfulness and in the Lord's faithfulness and His work in you as much as it necessarily has to be characterized as an enticement to evil. In fact, James goes on to warn us from thinking too quickly in those ways, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, there's the word again, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's the blessing side of trial, of test. And then he cautions us. Let no one say, when he is tempted, pirazzo, same verbal form of the word translated temptation or trial. Let no one say, when he is tested or tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each one, excuse me, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's about to put an exclamation point on this caution and this principle. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The providential circumstances, difficulties, tests, and trials of life are part of God's good gifts that are intended to prove His faithfulness and to affirm in us His grace and care for us. And it's only when we allow ourselves to be lured and enticed by those cravings and those desires. The test or the trial out here is not the thing. Do you see what I'm saying? The the circumstance, the difficulty, the long stretch of trial, whatever it might be, the chronic illness, whatever it might be, that is not the thing. That very well could just be a way that God's trying to test us, and he's calling us, commanding us to embrace it with joy simply because we understand that that this is how he matures us and, and moves us to a place where we literally lack nothing. It's only when we allow our unsanctified, fleshly, carnal desires to be enticed towards sin in response to the trial that it's conceived and gives birth to sin. This is a very important distinction and understanding about the nature of temptation and how we are to view it and ultimately overcome it and endure it, endure through it. So here's just a general Principle, general, maybe point of application. If our general perception in these matters is shaded toward only seeing constant enticements to sin all around us, we are missing a crucially important insight that can help us walk in steady faithfulness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I've already said it. The very circumstances that we often want to point to as temptation could very well simply be trials or tests that the Lord wants to use to mature us and to demonstrate and confirm His faithfulness and His work of grace in us. So we need to understand when we think about temptation that we don't think about it unbiblically. And that we recognize that the very circumstances, the very trials of life that we often allow ourselves to begin to think are the reason why we're, we're falling into sin. It's the same things that the Lord uses to perfect and affirm His faithfulness. And if we embrace them with joy, understanding the purpose and the ultimate outcome, it no longer becomes an enticement 
to our sinful desires. So the first sort of sub-principle here for us is to recognize that temptation doesn't have to mean temptation the way we often allow it to translate in our own minds, in our own thinking. Well, secondly, and this is another super important principle, no temptation is unique and thereby uniquely insurmountable. No temptation is unique and thereby uniquely insurmountable. He says it right there. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Anthropinos is the word. It just means after the manner of men or common to humanity. In fact, this lesson that the Apostle Paul has been walking through where he's drawing out principles from the Old Testament is, is to make that very point. Like this, this stuff happened over and over again for millennia. I mean, this is, this is the nature of life in a fallen world. Why is this such an important insight, an important principle for us to latch onto in our desire to walk in faithfulness and to not be lured into sin? When we recognize that no temptation is unique and thereby uniquely insurmountable, this serves for us as a hedge against self-defeating cycles of self-pity. And here's what I know to be true about most people who are struggling with gripping areas of sin. They also languish in cycles of self-pity. It's a very common correlation. You may ask why I know this. Well, it's only because I took a survey. I have no experience of this personally. (laughs) Right? I mean, this is just so innate. We don't have to look two minutes outside of our own experience, our own cycling thought processes. We, 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 We move quickly toward kind of a woe is me situation when we're thinking about these these gripping areas of sin, and we just we find ourselves in self-pity, and, and part of that can, can look just like this, where we start to say, no one really knows what I'm going through. No one really has to contend with what I'm having to contend with. Folks, listen. We must recognize that the Apostle Paul is teaching new Believers who were called to salvation out of rampant paganism that was characterized by rampant sensuality and all manner of carnal indulgence. Can you imagine the baggage that this church was carrying around all the time? If anyone would have a right if they would be given any quarter by the Apostle Paul, for example, for some semblance of sort of unique consideration, for the unique experience and difficulty of this unique person's unique temptations, then this would have been the letter that he would have written at. We're talking baggage galore brought into the church. He even refers to that Previously, I think in chapter 6, where he outlines all these different 
characterizations of sinfulness where it just identified the people as adulterers and thieves and the sexually immoral. And he goes, and you were saved out of that. Such were some of you, he says, but you were saved, you were washed. And so this this recognition, this reminder, this understanding that there is no such thing as unique proprietary temptation that then, in a self-deceptive kind of way, allows us to carve out a space where no one else can really understand what we're going through and therefore, in, in sinister ways, sort of justify the nature of us holding on to this kind of sin. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, there, there's no, there's no temptation that is not common to man. Common to humanity, in other words. This is a hedge against these self-defeating cycles of self-pity. If we find ourselves gripped by repeated areas of sin and sort of succumbing to our carnal desires, we need to recognize that self-pity, there's, there's no place for it. We need, to, we need to, first of all, address this self-deception that what we're going through or what we're experiencing or the difficulties of our current circumstance are somehow unique to us. They're not. This is also a critical call to active engagement in the body of Christ. The people of God need to be among the people of God regularly in active, engaged, vibrant, biblical fellowship. We've been harping on this as we've studied this letter. Such an important study about the church, the nature of the church, and how we are to function in the church. But listen, we're, we, we have sort of been living in a, a world of sort of churchianity for decades that is very consumer-driven, it's, it's very much oriented around, you know, kind of finding the place that sort of, you know, checks the boxes for us. It's kind of like, you know, we read consumer reports to figure out, you know, what had the best ratings for this and that. And we'll go, okay, we'll go there. And we just kind of show up. We have kind of a show up mentality. And then you just leave after, you know, a good shot in the arm, a good spiritual shot in the arm. And that is not the church. You, you cannot interpret properly most of the New Testament outside the context of a local church in terms of its real application. These are letters to churches. So as we understand this this nature of temptation, that, that there's nothing that's overtaken anyone that is not common to man, it drives us toward active engagement in the body of Christ because we recognize that this is common to you. The challenges that I'm walking through, the difficulties, the cycles of self-pity, the the sense of nobody understands what I'm going through, I need other people around me to tell me with force and consistency that is not true. And let me tell you why I know it's not true. Story one, story two, story three. And oh, by the way, that reminds me of something I was talking about to someone else who was telling me about their situation. Story one, story two, story three. This is what I mean by vibrant and engaged fellowship in the body of Christ. 
In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There is so much implied in this particular passage. The first thing that's implied here is that that there's enough life being shared together that someone would notice a transgression. And what often happens in many, many churches is that there's not enough common life shared to where you can float in and out of a fellowship with no one knowing your struggles. No one being privy to or having any awareness that you're languishing in some kind of gripping area of sin that ultimately is going to destroy you, destroy your relationships, destroy, destroy, destroy. That's what sin does. The implication here, though, from Galatians is that there's enough, there's enough vibrant fellowship, there's enough real, tangible fellowship that that, that would be noticed, that the transgression would be noticeable, or at least the effects of it, you know, the, the weight being borne by someone would be kind of noticed. That requires relationship and fellowship in the church. And then it says, you who are spiritual should restore him. So that implies that there are people who are genuinely engaged in ministry and growth and maturity who recognize that they are not growing in godliness and in their knowledge of the scriptures so that they can just let everybody know how godly and knowledgeable that they are. That they have this responsibility of seeing someone who is struggling in a trespass and gently restoring them. This getting your hands dirty kind of ministry, that's what maturity in the life of the church is about. And there's obviously another similar caution that we saw Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So again, that's the common to man thing. And then bear one another's burdens and listen to this. So fulfill the law of Christ. This is what fulfilling the law of Christ actually looks like. And anything short of that is not fulfilling the law of Christ. This recognition that there's no temptation that has overtaken anyone that is not common to man, that there's no uniquely particular, specialized, proprietary form of struggle or challenge that no one else knows about, that that doesn't exist, this reality ought to drive us toward active engagement in the body of Christ. Knowing that we're all struggling, but we're also all called to bear one another's burdens And to grow in godliness so that we're in a position of maturity and discernment so that we can be actively engaged in restoring ones who are are falling. This is a powerful encouragement toward genuine body life. And then finally, this reality that there's no specialized or unique kind of temptation that makes it uniquely insurmountable. It's a charge to entrust ourselves fully to our great and sympathetic high priest. It's, it, when, when you look at Hebrews, for example, in fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I didn't put this in my notes, but there's two 
passages in Hebrews that are just powerful in this regard. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, speaking of Christ. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then this familiar section in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This principle of recognizing that we are not facing or going through or trying to endure unique temptations, and that uniqueness to us makes them uniquely insurmountable, that when we recognize that that is not at all the case, and we we begin to grapple with the tendency towards self-pity when we find ourselves thinking in those ways. We begin to engage in actual body life with a sense of certainty that we're not alone in this struggle. Like, like the, the body of Christ is not made up of people who have sort of figured everything out or really who are just born knowing how to live life in full faithfulness. There are stories galore all around us, all the time. People who have gone through hell and back in their lives and seen God deliver and provide in astounding ways in his faithfulness. And we need that kind of fellowship and that kind of accountability and that kind of encouragement because these things are common to man. And that should press us, press us into the very arms of Christ himself. Because he's a sympathetic high priest. He is familiar in his humanity with temptation. And even though he is without sin, Hebrews tells us he understands our weaknesses. When we allow ourselves to be self-deceived, thinking that somehow my temptation and my struggle is not common to man, and we begin to wallow in self-pity... That leads to disengagement from God's people and ultimately distance from Christ himself. How on earth could we approach Christ in this trial, in this struggle, in this temptation, in this failure, in this defeat? And it's just the opposite. And this one principle of recognizing that these things are common to man. It should press us in. It should guard us against self-pity. It should compel us to other believers who are in the struggle, and it should compel us to the very foot of the cross and the compassion and provision and kindness and care of our great high priest. John Calvin warns and then encourages in this way around this passage. He says, he exhorts them, speaking of Paul, to look to the Lord because a temptation however slight it may be, will straightway overcome us and all will be over with if we rely upon our own strength. The Lord, he says, is the sure guardian of his people 
under whose protection you are safe. For he never leaves his people destitute. Accordingly, when he has received you under his protection, you have no cause to fear, provided you depend entirely upon him. And this will take us to our next point that we'll probably have to build out more fully next time because I'm looking at the time and I, I don't have time to do all of this. But let's just look at it very briefly. We need to recognize that God's faithfulness and care is specific and intentional. God's faithfulness and care is specific and intentional. Look there in the second part of verse 13. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One commentator says of this section, he says, In some cases, God may remove us from the situation of seemingly unbearable temptation, while in other cases, he may provide strength or other resources within the situation to strengthen his people so that they may endure the temptation and remain faithful to him. You think back to the last part of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, and he actually told Peter that he would deny him three times. And, of course, Peter saying that would never happen, Lord. Satan's going to sift you, Peter. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. In other words, your fall is not going to be beyond reach. Your stumble is not going to be beyond what I have for you. I'm not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability to be used by me. And the way that the Lord works oftentimes in protecting us, it could be so much as removing us from a situation in some providential, circumstantial kind of way. But usually, usually it is providing this way of escape that When we're tempted beyond our, he won't let us be tempted beyond our ability, but with the temptation, there is an article there, the temptation, very specific. With the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Those articles are in the Greek for a reason. Very specific. That the the way of escape that will be provided for you is a way of escape that is according to the actual struggle or trial or temptation that you're facing that you may be able to endure it. And that last principle that we'll look, look at is this principle of endurance, specifically and broadly. Oftentimes, our overcoming of temptation is enduring through it, not being delivered from it. In fact, when you think about the nature of trials that we've already looked at in James, that's the very principle there. It's a, it's a principle of perseverance, of endurance, in faithfulness, not just constant shielding and protection, but actually the resources specifically being brought to bear that we may be able to specifically address the temptation and endure faithfully through it. We'll talk about that more fully next time we're together. Let's pray.